Do you have a toxic relationship with money? Welcome to the 313 Men, Money, and Marriage podcast, where facts, logic, and reasoning are at the forefront of every conversation. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about if you have a toxic relationship with money. We're going to go over what the current stats say about our personal finances. What is your money personality type? What can you do to address your toxic relationship with money? What are some of the biggest money mistakes we make? Can having a budget help cure your toxic relationship with money? And lastly, we're going to go over some signs of an unhealthy money mindset with my guest, Greg's Take, retired banker and real estate investor. So sit back, relax, and enjoy as we delve deep into this issue. And welcome back to the 313 Men, Money, and Marriage podcast. And as I did say in the intro, we're going to be talking about do you have a toxic relationship with money? And what I'm going to do first, if you do follow the podcast, you will know that we kind of lead off with the statistics, which basically say this, roughly 60% of Americans live check to check, 60%. The savings rate in the United States currently right now is at about 4%. 50% of the country have more credit card debt than they actually have savings And lastly, over the past 20 years, the stock market, the S&P 500, has returned a little over 6%, but the average investor has done about 4.5% in that same 20-year period. So what we decided to do is reach out to a friend of the show who was in the banking industry and is a real estate investor. So would everyone give it up to my good friend here, Mr. Greg's Take. Good afternoon, Greg. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Andrew. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate you coming out and just uh, lending your your experience uh, in the industry and, you know, sharing it with the audience. Do you want to just go into a little, you know, backdrop of who you are and what it is you, that you do? Sure. I won't bore you with the details. I'm 54 years old. Uh, my wife and I have been together for 25 years. We have no kids. I live in the Nashville, Tennessee area. Um, I just left uh, residential mortgage lending after about 22 years, right around in there. And uh, before that, I was doing uh, part-time as a real estate investor. I broke six figures for the first time in my career ever and uh, went ahead and left the bank and now doing real estate full-time. I'm not buying, you know, 40-unit apartment complexes. I'm a single-family residence type of a guy. So really what I'm doing is, is stacking a little bit more wealth on top of the existing wealth that I do have. Uh, my wife's a bit older than I. She's 72. Um, so that season is coming quicker than it normally would. And um, just putting some uh, putting some seed in the storehouse. And this podcasting stuff, teaching people about money, what it is that I know about it and what I don't know about it, and I'll admit when I don't, it's really the, the most favorite thing that I do in my spare time other than buying and selling houses. Great. I'm so glad you mentioned that. And we will, you know, jump right in it here. The first thing I did want to ask you, Greg, was about those numbers that I quoted. And I'm pretty sure you you probably have heard of maybe some of them before. What are your thoughts on that? Like, well, let's start off with the very first one. 60% of Americans living check to check. What's your thoughts on that? 
Um, I don't know the exact statistics. None of us really do. But I would dare to say the inflation that we're in now, that 60% number is going to climb. So you you uh, think it'll go up higher than the 60%? I do. And I'm not a predictor. I, I never try to say the market's going to do this. Inflation is going to do that. I do know we're in the highest inflation we've been in in a very long time. I'm not a stock market type of a guy. I'm just kind of a soup and nuts, buy and sell houses here and there type of a fella. But um, if in some of the greatest economic prosperity we've ever seen as a country, which is what we're coming out of because the ability to borrow money was never cheaper than in the last 10 to 15 years. I don't know what the number was then, but I know a lot of people were still living check to check at that time. So when money gets more expensive, I'm going to assume that that 60% number, whenever that number was compiled, more than likely is going to go up. I, I got that. I, I totally understand that. The same yeah. thing pertains to the savings rate and the credit card debt. They're, I guess, sort of intertwined with each other. You know, less people are saving. That means that they're probably going into debt more. And so this is where we're at now. With rates, uh, you know, they've, they've, they're not high. They're just higher than they have been, like you said earlier, in the past, say, 10 or 15 years. You know, because yeah. I, I can go back right to a point where I remember, you know, in the 80s, I had a school teacher who used to talk about real estate. And I remember listening to him in high school. And he was literally, this was probably 83, 84, when I just got into high school, somewhere around that, that point in time. And he said that he got a really good deal on his interest rate. And he said he paid 11%. So, so yeah. I guess, I guess, you know, if we were to go back far enough, the rates were actually higher than what they are now, but they're higher than what we're used to, shall I say? Yeah. Um, I actually heard somebody make a statement. I don't know where in history they got it, but let's assume it was accurate. That back in the 1700s money was 7%. I never thought back that far. I mean, I'm 54. I've been a banker for, was a banker for 20 plus. You know, my, my timeline basically starts in the, in the early 1980s when Paul Volcker, the uh, chairman of the, of the Fed there, um, we went into some really nasty interest rates. I was a kid then, but I do remember my stepdad having to tighten down. He had just built three spec houses and the one we were living in, and he maintained those four mortgages without filing a bankruptcy in that environment. So, um, you know, we, we didn't starve or anything. He was able to get us through that. But yeah, that's about as far back in my brain as I go in terms of my memory. Got it. Now, Greg, I, I do want to just throw a few things at you. And, I, you know, we're not going to take up too much of your time. But I do want to ask you a few things here. And it's just uh, some of these questions are going to just be more your opinion. But I just want to get what your thoughts are on them. Why do you sure. think a majority of people in our country tend to struggle with having good money habits? Because it always seems like there's this push-pull relationship that people are having with money. Why do you think that's the case? Generally speaking, um, there's a very good chance that they, their parents did not have a good relationship with money or they didn't have good habits. This is not an indictment. It's just simply a possibility. And um, more than likely, Many people say we inherit that from our, from our parents. It doesn't mean it's in our DNA. It just means we do what they do, right? They model what they model, which is what they know. And if they weren't taught good money habits, then they're going to teach us what they know. That's pretty much the starting point. Um, and then 
you know, if, if a mom and a dad or a mom or a dad, it doesn't matter, doesn't matter what the family looks like. Um, not only is born into bad money habits, but then is financially struggling. We're just compounding the issue there. So, um, this stuff's not easy to change. It, it takes a lot of, it takes a lot of effort. It really does. So basically you're saying it's sort of, it could be a bad habit that's just been passed down from one, you know, generation to the other, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. And, and the main thing is this, I don't know. It's been said by many, many people that are into psychology and all these other things that from zero to seven is when the most stuff is pouring in and where most of our hardwiring comes from. I'm not going to pretend to know that that's not my wheelhouse, but if that is true, then I remember arguments about money growing up. That's about all my parents ever argued about, right? Generally speaking, it was about money. And fortunately, that ironed out a pretty good bit and, and calmed down for the most part in the, I'd say, the early 1980s. Um, but it was a, a point of stress, even though we were living, you know, I would say middle class, generally speaking. So really, it, um, it's tough, man. It's really, really tough. Now, you can have someone who comes out of a family with bad money habits and says, I'm going to change and I'm not going to be that way. If they make that conscious decision, good on them. But generally, they're going to have some sort of a role model somewhere around them in whatever capacity that hopefully models good behavior for them that they can repeat. Got it. That that certainly makes sense. Now, yeah. it, it, there's a thing where they talk about a person's personality type with money. And I'm just going to list the five that they have listed here. And mm-hmm. one says, you know, some people are big spenders. Some people are savers. Some people are shoppers. Some are debtors. And then there's some who are investors. So I guess since this is a men, money and marriage podcast. So one of the things we do talk about when it comes to men getting married, because we tell men it's probably in their best interest to be married, but you got to make sure you're ready the right person. And one of the screening processes that you can use is what is the person's personality type with money during the dating process. And the reason why I'm saying that is because you can, you know, money is usually either number one, two, in most surveys, sometimes three, you know, the highest reason why people get divorced. So in this screening process, if you can, you know, find out what their personality type is, you know, I, I think that's, that's a, you, that's about 50% of the way there before you even decide to get married. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, there's an interesting thing about getting married. At least one of the interesting things in my opinion is let's say we're the, the saver and the conservative financial person. And, and let's just say we've been dating this person for a while and we know that they're not good with money. Maybe we know they're a spender. Maybe we know they spend based on emotion. Maybe we know they don't have a good relationship with money and we mistakenly think we can change them. All we have to do is just love them enough that nothing could be further from the truth. This stuff is inside of them. It's hardwired into their brain when we met them, if that's the case. So, you know, I'm not saying run screaming in the night in the other direction, but I would say if you can get a hold of a personality, some sort of a personality typing, use it because it would be nice to kind of know what you're in for, no matter how good the sex is, no matter how much you love them. This stuff is going to haunt you if you don't face it. I, I totally agree with you. I think that you have to understand that a lot of times people think that because someone is in a relationship with them, that they're automatically going to change into what it is that they want. Yep. And that couldn't be further from the truth because it never happens. You know, a lot of times 
you know, we don't, we just think that once we're in the confines of the marriage, that people just become more responsible. And that isn't the case at all. The next thing I wanted to get into is in your line of work, you know, how does these poor credit scores affect people's, you know, their, their financial decisions? Because, you know, I, I did speak to someone a while back who, you know, worked in uh, doing, you know, mostly consumer loan type things. And they said, you know, a, a majority, you know, not a majority, but maybe half the people that come in, you know, usually have issues with their credit. So what what is that? Where does that put you at if you have, you know, bad credit? You know, what is your chances of, you know, kind of getting out of that hole and cleaning it up? You know, I mean, as a banker, what do you do in those situations? Well, the, the world that I worked in for the vast majority, damn near my entire career, I dealt with what's called a paper or a borrowers. Um, where that credit score starts generally is around 620 and above. I don't really split people into camps of this score and above, this score in the middle, and this score below. But the, in, in the end, the banking world thinks this way, rate equals risk. So the lower your credit score is, the, the higher your interest rate is, the higher you are as a credit risk. That's why you pay more for the money that you do borrow. So if you want your borrowing to get cheaper, it's good if you can clean up your credit score and get it up there to a point where you're not paying as much because all interest paid is, is rent for the use of someone else's money. And the worse your credit score is, the more rent you're going to pay. Did I answer that question? That's a perfect answer to that because I was going to say, you know, <laughs> I, I, I never heard of that analogy. You know, so I thought yeah. that was actually pretty good because, you know, it, it is you're, you're sort of, you know, you're asking someone for money and yep. they're, they're going to give it to you on a premise that you're a good shepherd of your money. <laughs> so I guess if they see that you're not, then what they're the, going to do is just charge you more. One thing I do want to add is this. If you're out there listening and your credit score is what you deem as bad or you've been told by banks that it's very, very low, I want you to remember at least one thing today as you hear me speaking. Your credit score is not a reflection of who you are as a human being. It's nothing but the accumulative relationship that you've had with money up to the point of when the credit report got pulled. It doesn't mean that it can't be changed, but it's not going to change magically. It takes awareness. It takes education. It takes determination and it takes focus and it takes time, but it can be done. No, Greg, I did a, a show talking about, you know, ways that you can do to, you know, boost your credit score. And one thing that I did when I looked up and did the research on it, and I had known this for a while, you know, they say literally one third of your credit score is simply paying your bills on time. And, you know, I, I tell people that's 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 the biggest thing that you probably be you probably should do is just make sure that you're paying your bills in a timely manner so that your score will go up. Because a yeah. lot of times you'll see some people, they'll say, yeah, we'll put you in this loan and it's going to be high. But if you make a year of car payments, then you can refinance it. Have you seen or heard of that type of thing before? Yeah. Uh, first, let me open with this. I'm 54. My wife is 72. Again, we've been together for 25 years. We have never, I repeat, never been late on anything we've ever paid on, ever. We came close once. I think we had a debit card number change. And I thought I had made all the changes online and, and with the writing of the checks and whatever. I think I missed one. And fortunately, they called us. They've got a little 800 number. Hey, this is Susie at the credit thing, blah, blah, blah. Um, you've got a payment due and, you know, whatever. We weren't late yet in, in two weeks. I just jumped online and made the payment. 
Um, but you could call me lucky. I, I was a banker, so I knew how it worked and it wasn't a big deal. It happened, but you're right. If we're going to start anywhere, we need to start with paying our bills on time when we're borrowing money. Because when I pull your credit report or when I did in the banking business, if you have late payments on credit cards, there's a little bit of fudge factor in the decision, especially if you're buying a house. If you have late payments on things like cars um, and student loans, of course, those aren't going to help you at all. The worst late you can ever have on your credit report is a mortgage. That is the one that will hurt you the most because it's the biggest. That's a good point there. And, you know, I, I'm a, I share a story with the audience here just to let people know when I was this was about 22 years ago, 22 years ago, I was buying my very first home and I wasn't married at this time. And it was a this this huge giant. And this I'm, I'm exaggerating here. Nine hundred and ninety square foot, two bedroom, one and a half bath house that I was purchasing. And. I had one, and this is, my credit was good when they pulled it and everything, but I had one payment that was late on a card, and I only owed it, it was like a, I had a reoccurring payment that would pop up that would be like $10, mm-hmm. and I apparently I was late maybe once or twice, and they said you have to write a letter basically stating why you were late. And I thought that I thought they were joking. Yeah. And yeah. I was like, why? Why? It was 10 bucks. And I says, I, yep. you got the money. I mean, it just it was like I, I literally you ever have a bill that's so small you forget to pay it. Like not you know, your mind yeah. sometimes you're just yeah. thinking, you know, like I literally just forgot to pay it one time because it was 10 bucks. Yep. And I knew I was supposed to pay it and everything. I just it slipped my mind. But I literally had to write a letter stating why it was late. Yeah, and I'll add to that because I've it's been a while since I've seen one of those letters. The more lights you have, um, most people tend to, and this is natural human behavior, they want to over-explain why their credit is in whatever, whatever the lights may be, right? And that's understandable. It's like if you're being questioned by the police, there is an overwhelming urge for you to tell your story, and the worst thing you can do is open your mouth in that particular case. That's an example, but the short and sweet letter is usually the best, right? If you're going to have to write one of these to, to apply for credit, you know. It's usually fairly simple. This thing was on a, an auto deduct. My debit card number changed. I overlooked it. I thought I updated it in the system and I didn't. Just keep it short and sweet. Just don't lie. I mean, there's no way they're going to know if you do, but it needs to make sense. And a lot of times, like that late you talked about, that letter was a formality because everything else was fine. But the more stuff that's on there, they're going to want to know. Like, for example, let's say you go buy your very first house and you're getting into like an FHA or a USDA loan and you really don't have any money down, but the seller's helping you. Maybe your parents gift you a little bit of money, whatever. Um, those um, are the times when, you know, the lates um, come into play a little bit more so, but they want you to explain why. And the, my point was this, it slipped out of my brain. I have seen an underwriter deny a loan because on the bank statements that were used for down payment money, they had overdraft fees all over their checking account. So if you don't think those two are connected or can affect each other, we need to think twice. Because the bankers, think of this, we're asking them to borrow their money. They can damn near ask us for anything. They already have our social security number. They already have our date of birth. They already know where we live. They already know where we work. We give them our tax returns, our W-2s, and our 1099s. 
and we give them their, our bank statements. So that can affect too. I don't know if that made any sense. No, it does. And, and I totally, yeah. I totally understand that, you know, a lot of times, you know, I, I don't think, and this is just my personal opinion that the, your relationship with a bank doesn't have to be adversarial. I think it can be relatively comfortable if you go in there, I guess, in good standing. Because mm-hmm. I, there was a point I remember one time, and I get to the next area I wanted to get into. I had a was doing a car loan, and you know I walked in there. I looked like you know at the time someone who probably didn't have good credit. You know I was just wearing you know jeans, t shirt type thing. I was I had the day off, and I went in there, and they're like, okay, here we go. It has another guy here who's probably going to get denied, but I actually they pulled up my credit score, and I had good credit. So when I came back in their whole demeanor changed. They were like, oh, you, I see you have this. Do you want to switch it over to this and this, that, and the other? So that's what I'm yeah. saying. If, you have, if you're in good standing, they'll bend over backwards to loan you money. But if you're in poor standing, then it becomes a little bit more adversarial. What do you think about yeah. that? Yeah, and, and what it really is, is if, if it's the first time you've gone into the bank, possibly, and you're trying to build a relationship, I would recommend you find as close to a local bank as humanly possible. Like, let's say you see the name of the bank and it's not a big name. Look it up on the internet. Find out who owns it. The one, the one that I worked for that I left was literally owned by a family that was 30 minutes north of where the branch was at that I worked at. That's pretty rare these days. Now, they were up in their 80s, the, the husband and wife, and they sold it to a man who owns probably seven banks. But he's in the southern part of the U.S., so he's kind of a, like I call it like a semi-regional type of a banking footprint. But... If it's the first impression, you don't need to be in a suit and tie, but certainly don't go in there wearing Daisy Dukes with your ass cheeks hanging out and smoking a damn cigarette and looking like a fool. I mean, you know, just use common sense. Think of it as a bit of a job interview. Uh, And it's just about perception. We all have perceptions. They're instantaneous. The second we meet someone, you can't stop someone from having one and just be humble for an hour, 45 minutes and go, I'm going to play the game. That's what I tell people. They're like, I hate banks. I don't trust them, whatever, whatever. Unless you've got the cash to buy the thing you want to buy, just play the game. That's all you have to do. But you don't have to play it forever if you're smart. Got it. All right. The next area yeah. I do want to go into is what? Are you, what's your thought process on budgeting? And, you know, the question I'm asking you basically is does it work and would you recommend it? Um, budgeting can work. And I think the best way that it works in the beginning, if you've never done it, is when you sit down and do it with your spouse or partner or alone if you are single. And you go, holy mackerel, I didn't know I spent this much on whatever it is, Starbucks, donuts, whatever, you know. Um, The main thing we need to do is what I call just pop it, just pop your finances, just put it on paper. This is basic, you know, um, financial workshop 101 stuff. Sit down, write it all out. How much money's coming in net after taxes. And most people who get a check, they know exactly what their net is. Well, Greg, I'm 1099. I get commissions. Then use an average. Take 12 months, divide by 12. That would be a good number there. Um, And just see what's coming in and what's going out. And what's going out part, there may be stuff you forget about. You know, a a magazine subscription online, um, your cable bill, your phone bill, um, anything that's going out, rent, utilities, groceries, all of it. Get everything you can possibly think that you spend out and just add it all up and compare what's coming in after taxes, net take home to what's going out. If those numbers, basically, if you've got enough money to cover the budget and there's a little left, then you've got a little bit of surplus. If you're dead even, then you're basically living check to check, right? 
if you're in a negative, then you're making up the difference somewhere. If you have more bills than you have paycheck, then you may be tempted to go pop it on plastic. Um, one thing in the space is, is if you're buying your food on a credit card, a bankruptcy is very, very imminent. Um, so it's that's a good a, that's tool. A good it point. Really, it's, it's a good self-assessment tool. And the, the time that it can be a problem is, is when one person in the relationship is gung-ho and the other one is, this is BS. I don't need to do this. I'm not 15 years old. And then there's conflict. And if you don't resolve that, it's never going to get better. So I'm lucky I married a woman who's retired from banking. Her grandfather owned a small hometown bank up north. He was also a farmer. And her mother retired from banking. So I kind of got lucky when I met my wife. But uh, that's not normal, you know. But budgeting is a powerful tool. But I will tell you this. It's only the math. But we need to see the numbers first, the math first. The budgeting is not the mind shift change that you're after. You have to consciously change your behavior around money or the math isn't going to do you any good. Got it. That makes a lot of sense there. Yep. I'm just going to go over this. is The last part we're going to do, and it's just going to I'm going to uncover, you know, go over some of these unhealthy mindset statements. Now, just to give the audience a little bit of background, there's 10 of them, but we're not going to do all 10. So, Greg, I'm just going to throw a few of them out to let you know that, that you're having an unhealthy mindset. And I just want to get your opinion on them. Mm-hmm. Spending money makes you feel guilty. High credit card debt. When you spend money to enjoy yourself, you don't want to talk about money. And this last one I think is pretty interesting. It says you will turn down social invitations because you can't, you know, get the person basically a gift. What did you think about those five there? Name, name that first one. I don't uh, want to miss. Sure. Uh, spending uh, money kind of makes you feel guilty. Okay. Um, if spending money makes me feel guilty, then that means there's probably something in my past or possibly my current time in life where I've been um, made to feel shame over, over having anything or having something. So, that's some deep work, not my wheelhouse, not my wheelhouse. Um, but it can, it can be troublesome, obviously. I mean, think about it. We can't live without money. It's nearly impossible. Unless we want to go live up in the hills, and grow all our own food, and raise all our own meat, and build all of our own tools, and, and just totally go off grid, which is damn near impossible these days. Um, it, it's tough. I don't know if I answered that one sufficiently or not. All right, that's fine. The other yeah. one is a high credit card debt. Yeah, that one, basically, if I use plastic, it's a gas card, for example. I pull up, put the money, uh, put the card in, put the gas in the tank. When the bill comes in, I pay it, right? As a banker, I got paid on the 15th and the 30th. No matter where the gas bill was in balance, I paid on the 15th and the 30th. So it never went past the 30-day mark. Once the balance goes past the 30-day mark, then it's revolving credit, right? It's a credit card. And it the interest is accrued daily, by the way. So it's just constantly building, constantly building. So whatever the credit card is, if you're using them purely for convenience and paying them off inside of the 30-day window, then that's fine. But if you're carrying balances, then you're probably treating that like your savings or your quote-unquote emergency fund or your emotional crutch 
And all I would ask you is, is how long have you been doing it? And is it serving you well? And are you asking yourself why you never have any money? Look at those credit cards and be honest about it. Ask yourself, if I change my behavior around these, could this change for me possibly? Got it. I skipped over one. And first one I think I was supposed to say was worrying about not having enough money. You know, uh-huh. being in a situation where you're, 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 it's a constant thought process that you just don't have enough. Yep. The, this would be lack. We call this a, a mindset or a mentality or an, an energy of lack. And something that came to me as you were talking is if I think I'm never going to have enough money, this can be a couple of things. It can be fear from when we were growing up and we had scarcity, or it could be that coupled with I've now become a very high wage earner and I'm nervous and I don't ever feel that I have enough because I'm hanging on to that old emotional baggage or I'm a high wage earner and I'm just simply greedy and I just, I just want more, 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 right? So it can go a couple of different ways, but I would say this, if I'm thinking that I'll never have enough money, I have to remind myself of something and it's kind of silly. Greg, you're 54. You haven't starved to death yet. So to this point, you've always had enough. That's a good way to put it. Uh, The next one I just want to cover really quick is you don't want to talk about money. And what's your thoughts on that one real quick? Um, This can be based on the relationship that we're currently in. Let's assume we're, we're adults and we're living in an adult household with a spouse partner or whatever, or we could be single. This typically means um, I don't want people to know how much money I make, whether it's a little or a lot. And it can go back to what we were taught about money. Some people say, well, it's private. And, and that's fine. I respect that. I don't have a problem telling people how much money I make. I don't go around you know, transmitting the assets that I hold, but it's not an issue. And I will tell you this, rich people, they talk about money very, very freely in their circles. It's just like breathing to them. It's a part of the conversation because it's a big part of their lives. Maybe they're building a business. You know, maybe they're, they're doing the things that we all try to do, maybe get their kids through college and, and they talk about these things, but it's not this taboo thing. You know, we could be raised in a household. We don't talk about money. That's private or it's shameful. So it, there can be a lot of baggage would be one, one reason why we wouldn't want to talk about it or maybe we're hanging around people that make more money than we do, and we're trying to front and act like we're at a certain level, financing everything, the cars, the clothes, and everything else, and we're scared to death that if they find out that we're fronting, that we'll be humiliated, and they'll kick us out of their circle. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it, too. I mean, that's just, yeah. you know, yeah, sure. The last yeah. one I just want to say, and we'll keep this one really short, is just turning down social invitations, you know, so you don't want to go out because whether it's a wedding or something where you have to pay some money, I guess, and, you know, they basically, you know, you have to buy a gift, and you don't have the money, so you turn it down. What's your thoughts on that? Um, well, I would say this. If I got invited to the wedding, I don't necessarily have to, like, in the first immediate circle of the person being married, know them that well. I could be in the second the third or the fourth circle of their influence, right? A friend of a friend of a friend. Don't feel pressured to bring a gift to a wedding. Um, It's okay to go to a wedding and not bring a gift. And I know it's tradition. And if you feel ashamed or if you feel embarrassed, then ask yourself, do I really want to go to this wedding? If it's going to make me feel that way, then stay home. But if you got a little bit of gumption and you truly can't afford to buy them a gift, 
try going to the wedding anyway. But then you're like, well, I'm eating their food, I'm drinking their drinks, and I'm doing this and that. And the third, I don't really know how to tell anybody to deal with that. But if I'm turning down a social invitation because I don't want to buy them a gift, maybe I have money struggles. I would say take care of your own first. Pay your bills, keep your lights on, feed your babies, pay your rent. Don't be pressured to spend money on stuff that you, you simply can't afford. I don't give a damn if it's your best friend. Get married. Here's what I did. In, in June of 1995, I got sober as a young man. I stopped acting like a fool. And I got straight up. I mean, we're talking like um, Catholic priest celibacy from alcohol completely changed my life. And here's what I did. I picked up the phone and I called all of my close family members. And I said, I am declaring Christmas bankruptcy. I simply don't have it. And they're like, we're just glad you're not drinking anymore and wrecking cars. And that was that. And really wasn't a gift buyer even after that. Well into my sobriety. That's perfect. And, you know, yeah. we, we'll, we'll have another conversation about some of that stuff, too, in the future. Uh, yeah. But we, we have, a, we're going to be recording, if, if Greg's okay with it, there's going to be a, f- a few more of these financial episodes that we're going to be doing. And uh, we, uh, we're going to talk about some of those topics coming up in the future. But we're, ra- we're about to wrap up. And I do want to say to Greg, uh, thank you for coming on. Uh, you're sharing your, uh, your area of expertise with this particular subject matter. And we really do appreciate it. So everyone give it up for Greg one more time. And what we're going to do is I just want to say one little quick thing before we wrap up. I was on another podcast called Creating Greatness. And the title of that episode was Keys to Finding That Special Someone. So if you want to go check that out, Creating Greatness podcast with Robert Prash. Uh, go check that out and list, uh, give him some listens here pertaining to that particular episode. The website will be in the show notes. Just click on that link and you can leave a review, get on the email list. You can leave a voice review if you want to as well. The Instagram page is the 313 Men Money Marriage, all one word. You can go in there and see pictures of previous guests. There's some clips up there and a few other things. So with that being said, until we meet again, We are out.